Good morning, Bethel. Good to see all of you on this beautiful November Sunday that we can worship our Lord together on the Lord's Day. You know, we are in Titus, finishing up our series today in Titus chapter 3. You know, one of the things that has been, you know, mentioned by, you know, many commentators in our world and even conversations, you may have had this conversation with friends and family, is the world today is a lot different than what it was when you grew up. Specifically, the lack of civility in our world. You know, it, it, it's even to the point now, like some of the most popular like social media pages are people losing their minds. And you guys laugh because you get caught into them as well. The road rage, the people mistreating, um, you know, workers at restaurants or just fights that break out in Walmart. It's just this lack of civility in our world today. And I would venture to tell you that the reason for that is as our Western society moves to a post-Christian culture, we have the lack of the word of God written on people's hearts, which changes the way they view the world around them and the way they act in the world around them. And we're going to see that today in Titus chapter 3. If you'll remember in week one, we talked about how Titus was actually a church planner in Crete. And Crete was kind of like a, it's an island off the, kind of in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was kind of like a, an ancient Tortuga. You know, there was a lot of pirates there in Crete. And Titus was sent there to plant a church. Just imagine trying to plant a church among the pirates of the Caribbean uh, in that movie. That's what, that was the tall task that Titus had. And Paul's writing him this letter um, as an encouragement and giving him some, some, um, just imperatives to plant this church and reach the people there in Crete with the gospel message. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is going to show us how the gospel reshapes how we feel about people. People who dislike us, who misrepresent us, or even persecute us. In verse 1 of Titus chapter 3, he says, Remind them, believers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Notice the key word there, all people, Christians, but toward, not just Christians, but toward all people, even those who may mistreat you. That's the command Paul gives. But in the next verse, in verse 3, and we'll get there in just a second, he starts it out with, for, or you could say because, and then he gives one of the clearest, most concise explanations of the gospel found in anywhere of the letters that he has written. And this is the key to interpreting all of Paul's teaching. Commands always flow out of gospel declarations. It's not that we do these things that make us better people and that result in God approving of us. It's that when we become aware of what God has done for us in Christ, we, out of our love and gratitude toward our Savior, we do these things. There's a difference there. Martin Luther said it this way, imperatives in the Bible always flow out of indicatives. Now, Remember sentence diagramming in English class. How many of you guys like that? You guys just love, all right, my English professor in college is here today. 
And so, you know, I, I, honestly, Miss Lawrence, I really didn't like English class, but I, I, I really wish I would have paid more attention in English class because I greatly appreciate <laughs> what you taught me back then. And I wish I knew more today. As I'm writing that email, I'm like, for work that's going out to a broad audience, I'm thinking, hmm. Let me Google some of these uh, some of these grammar here. Let me make sure that it's right. I really wish I'd have paid more attention in English class, but we're going to talk about a little bit of a little bit of English today. Imperatives. What are imperatives? They are commands. Indicatives are statements of fact. An imperative is commands of what God wants us to do flow out of indicatives or declarations of what God has done. You guys following with me? And you guys didn't think you were coming to English class this morning whenever you, you came to church. But that's, that's going to be the, the backbone of our message today. Imperatives are commands. Indicatives are statements of fact. Imperatives, commands of what God wants us to do, flow out of indicatives or declarations of what God has done. Before the gospel tells you to behave or become, it tells you to behold the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, for beholding is the way to become, and when you become, you will behave in a way that brings God honor and glory. So, beholding the glory of God makes your heart seek righteousness. And when you become righteous, you naturally will seek to do righteous acts to the world around you. So we'll divide this message today into two parts, indicatives and imperatives. I told you you get an English lesson today, didn't I? All right. We'll look first at the indicative of what Paul declares to us about the gospel and the imperatives of what he wants us to do in response to that. So verse 3, he's going to start with a description of us as a people, and it is a dismal one. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Man, Look at that. That is who we are. That's how Paul described us as a people. Foolish is a word meaning ignorant or warped. Literally, our hearts became spiritually stupid. We became moral morons. That is our world today. The Apostle John says we love darkness rather than light. Paul said, we became twisted in our minds and disordered in our emotions. We are a world who lives and makes decisions based on their emotions and not the truth of Scripture. Disobedient. It's another word he says there. It's not just that our morality got disordered. We disobeyed even the things we knew were right. Led astray. Our hearts got to, into a condition that we were susceptible to deception. It's not that we were honestly tricked. It's that we wanted to be deceived. It's like the person who wants to hate somebody else, and so they find a reason to justify that hatred. 
People often blame their issues on those who influence them. Oh, I just, I, you know, I hung out with the wrong crowd. But the reason you hung out with the wrong crowd is because you like them. Your deceitful, wicked heart liked them better than the right crowd. We didn't just hang out with the wrong crowd. We were the wrong crowd. That's why we preferred them. We were born with a disposition toward the wrong, which makes us deceivable. And we see this in our kids, don't we? Nobody gets up on Saturday morning with their fifth grader, having cleaned the bathrooms, cleaned the kitchen, sitting on the couch, reading their Bible, journaling in their Bible, and saying to mommy and daddy, I just need to surrender more of my life to the Lord. We, we, no, none of us have a, a fifth grader doing that. We say, no, who destroyed my living room? No, it's not your sister. She's two months old. That is the way. No, we, I didn't have to teach my kids to lie or be disrespectful. That came natural to them. Our hearts are ready to be led astray because of our sin nature. He says, slaves to various passions. Our separation from God left a gap in our hearts that made us dependent on other things. Blaise Pascal said, God's absence left a void, a vacuum. We couldn't say no to the desires of our body. Think of it like drowning. You don't die from holding your breath. You die from breathing in water. When you are not breathing in air, you must breathe in something else. Same with spiritual breath. When you are not breathing in the glory of the gospel of God, you will find something else to breathe in. And the biggest lie of our culture is rejecting God's laws lead to freedom. It is exactly the opposite. When we reject God, we become addicted, or as Paul said in this passage, slaves to our passions. You know, think about it like this. You know, it's like a fish. You, you look at the, the fishes in the pond or the ocean, and they look at the outside world, and they think, man, that world looks so amazing. They've got playgrounds and roller coasters and cars. I'm so restricted here in this body of water. I just want to get out and go enjoy the outside world. But what the fish doesn't realize is he will die because there is freedom set up for him in the pond. Same way in our lives. Your soul can't hold its breath. You either breathe in the glory of God or you have to breathe in and become slaves to your passion. It says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Whenever you put something or someone else in the place of God, you end up hating it when inevitably it will disappoint you, because it always will. Like an old bridge with a sign that says, max weight, two tons. We don't see those so much here in Orlando, but if you are in out in a rural community, you may see those. In other words, if you're driving an 18-wheeler filled with cargo full of steel, do not drive across this bridge. This bridge is not designed for that kind of weight. It will collapse. Same thing with your soul. We put too much weight on these other things that we think will bring us happiness, and they collapse, so we hate them. That's why marriages fall apart. They start out well, and they go bitter. They, people think that marriage, in and of itself, 
finding that soulmate is going to bring me all of the joy and happiness in life. When really we know that only God will bring joy. It's drowning in a sea. It sucks the life out of each other. If you love the praise of others, you'll hate others who get praise more than you because they are stealing your glory. If you idolize family, you'll end up becoming bitter or self-pitying when your family disappoints you. And they will because you're all sinners. Inevitably, to forgive is a the inability to forgive is a form of hate. You hate your ex-spouse because they destroyed the family situation you had always yearned for and you could never forgive them for that reason. What you idolize, you will eventually demonize. When you put something in the place of God, it puts into a place, your soul into a place where your soul shrivels and you become guarded and hateful toward anyone who threatens that. The great writer J.R.R. Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings trilogy with Gollum. You know, Gollum, the, the character in there, my precious. You guys have ever read those books or watched those movies. When the Lord of the Rings was published in the 1950s, a, a woman wrote Tolkien, objecting to the character of Gollum and the Dark Lord making, putting all of the power in a ring. She said that the Dark Lord would never put a, all of his power into a ring. That would make him vulnerable. And Tolkien responded, yes, but this is always what we do. We place all of our hope and power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture our destruction with disastrous results to oneself. Our life depends on that one thing. Gollum's life was wrapped up in that ring and it destroyed him. The same thing happens to us in this life. Hated by others and hating one another, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to your passions, living our days in malice and envy, this is who we are. God has thousands of reasons to condemn us for our sin. We like to think of ourselves as mostly good with a few rough spots that we just need to sand down, a couple of bad spots to cut out. And we don't like to think of ourselves as, no, sin has ultimately corrupted us. Paul calls it a spiritual death. We are dead in our sins. Notice that before Paul gets there where he, he, he brings you, before he gets to the gospel, he brings you face to face with our true depraved self. We were once foolish. Sometimes we want to skip over this and get to the gospel. You'll never appreciate the beauty of the gospel until we truly understand who we are. The famous Christian defender of the faith, Francis Schaeffer, was once asked, if you had an hour on a train to talk to an atheist about the gospel, what would you, how would you spend that hour? And Schaefer responded, I would spend 45 minutes on the reality of his depraved situation and 15 minutes to preach the good news of the gospel. Because you see, we in our world, we think we're okay. We think we're generally good people. 
you'll hear that on talk shows and read that in magazines, but that is antithetical to what Paul is saying here. We are lost. We are dead in our sins. We are a people in need of a Savior. Verse 4. Verse 4 may be one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. It's a big first word, but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. The kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. Man, what glorious words in Scripture. You see here in this passage, God is the only actor. It's not that I did my best and he graded me on a curve. No, he did it all. What was my part in salvation? Nothing. All I did was the sinning. He did all of the saving. You notice, I'm, you and me, we're not anywhere in verse 4. God's not anywhere in verse 3 because he's holy. You say, what is my part? Do I have to be good? Do I have to do my best? And he'll take care of the rest. No, from start to finish, God did it all, and it must be received as a gift from him. Keep going, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Nothing we've done, but according to his own mercy. Not goodness in my heart that led to salvation, but love in his. It owed nothing to my righteous works or my good intentions or my promises to be better. If you remember from our God series that we just finished previous to this one, what is, what, what is mercy? We talked about this. Mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. He keeps going here. He did it by the washing of regeneration. Washing, he cleanses us from the stain of sin, like Jesus healing the lepers. That word regeneration is very powerful, and it's a very explosive word in the original Greek. The term the Greek philosophers used for reincarnation, they believed, you see, that life went in cycles, and the world corrupts and is reborn. And Paul says, no, the world does not go in cycles. Regeneration happens once. It happens at the resurrection. Jesus puts all of that power in you when you believe in him. And the Greek philosophers in that day would have gone nuts when they read that because Paul was using their word. And Paul says the regeneration you are looking for is something God puts in you when you believe in Jesus. Never underestimate the power of the new birth in the heart of a believer. The people God uses to change the world, you see, are always deeply flawed people. Peter was a coward. Paul was a murderer, abrasive and harsh. But the new birth made these men, gave them incredible power to share the gospel message. They changed history. But here's what I know. They were not made of any different material than you. Except they understood the gospel and they embraced it. Keeps going here in the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renew. Made new again. That's why we don't need to turn over a new leaf. That's why we don't need an infusion 
No, not a resolve to do better, but we need resurrection power. You see, Paul says in his writings that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, when we accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, that same power resides in the life of a believer. And that's what God's grace gives us. Grace is power, not just a pardon. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. So mercy is being is with God withholding from us what we deserve, and grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. See the words he poured out richly. It cost him. It cost him the death of his son, Jesus Christ, but it was free for us. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It says we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In him, you get everything that God has to offer. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That is the indicative. That is the behold your God. That is behold the glory of the gospel. He declares to us the core of our faith. But Paul was not just giving us here in this passage a doctrinal lecture for the sake of a lecture. He was urging us toward a behavior. So here are the imperatives. There are two. Two imperatives we have out of this passage. We have an imperative for the unbelievers. You must be born again. You are under the condemnation of sin. It's left you guilty. And there are only two ways to pay for this condemnation of sin. One, you pay for your sin through an eternity in hell. Or Christ pays for your sin with his death, burial, and resurrection. Either you pay or Christ pays on your behalf. You see, we were dead. You don't need a reformation. You need a new life. You need death and resurrection. This is vastly different from moral reformation. People often confuse Christian conversion with moral reformation. With moral reformation, you're mostly good. God looks at you and sees you like a banana with a bad spot, and he says, hmm, I see some potential here for using you in a, in a protein shake. That's moral reformation. No, sin knocks us down and makes us dead. You see, with moral reformation, you're in charge. You decide what to do. You decide how far to go. You decide to do it. You set the goals, and you get to see them fulfilled. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Spirit is something that is done to you, through you, by the power of the resurrection. You can only surrender and receive it when you come to Christ 
as a helpless beggar, saying, it's nothing I can do. My righteousness in this world is worthless. I need Christ to wash me anew. It has to be received as a gift. So the imperative for unbelievers is you must be born again. You must accept the gift of salvation. The imperative for believers is see the unbelieving world through this lens. Go back to verse 1 of Titus chapter 3. It says, Remind them, believers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. You know, this word humility is a word is submissiveness. God saved you. You didn't save yourself. And he didn't save me because I was smarter or more moral. He says, you show perfect courtesy for all because they are dead like you were, but made in the image of God like you. Do we live in a world that shows perfect courtesy to all? <laughs> no. Far from it. But when we do that, the world begins to look different. You'll find yourself ready and eager to do good works, not because you have to, but because you want to, to glorify God and love others because it's in your nature, because it's been written on your heart by the renewal from the Spirit. God is after people who are gracious because he is gracious who treat others as they have been treated. These things, Paul says, authenticate our faith to the outside. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I read not too long ago about the deputy leader of the Labor Party, former deputy leader of the Labor Party in the United Kingdom named Roy Hattersley. He was a spoken, outspoken atheist. And here are his words. A little bit of a long quote, so hang with me, but it's powerful. It says, The arguments against religion are well-known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risk and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. The Christian John Wesley insists that good works are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be, be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that any faith and charity could go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out to the Salvation Army each night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that make them morally superior to atheists like me. We may boast that the truth of atheism has freed us from the shackles of religion, but it has not made us admirable as the average volunteer in the Salvation Army. Man, what a powerful quote. That man sounds like he's like a step close to understanding the gospel message. Paul says, these good works authenticate your faith to the outside world. That's what the deputy prime minister was saying. You look at Christians and what they do, you, you can't separate their works from their faith. 
You can't have encountered the grace of God and still treat sin casually. You can't understand salvation and be lukewarm in how you see God. You couldn't have tasted of God's incredible grace and still be stingy, ungenerous, and an unforgiving person toward each other. Because then you truly do not understand our God. Let's finish out this chapter in these last four verses. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And he gives a little bit of um, something to avoid here. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here's his point on these last few verses. Don't get distracted. Keep the main thing. Make the cross the center of your life, the center of your family. The center of your service should be around the cross of Jesus Christ. The indicative, behold Behold the cross of Christ. The only thing the Bible calls the power of God is salvation. By believing its resurrection is released into you. So put yourself into a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is heralded and rejoiced in and talked about. In your life, in your home, at your work, amongst your fellowship here with your Bethel family. Let's behold the indicative. Let's behold the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's embrace the imperative to show that to the world around us. Let's pray.